This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Getting licensed as an architect is difficult. It requires considerable time and dedication, and achieving licensure is frequently a source of concern to architectural employers and even greater concern to those that are currently going through the process. To that end, we are excited to have Alfred Fidari, incoming 2022 president of the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, to join us today on episode 86, Reimagining the Path to Licensure. Special thanks to NCARB for their support of today's conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today should be a very interesting conversation because our guest is uniquely qualified to talk with us about the process of being licensed as an architect. So we're going to jump right into it to maximize the amount of time we have with Alfred. So here's a brief introduction. Well, it's not that brief because what he's done and what he's accomplished is pretty impressive and I want to get through it all. So here we go. Alfred Fadari Jr., NCARB, NOMA, FAIA of Fort Worth, Texas, is a vice president of the 900-person multidiscipline firm of Friesen Nichols, Inc., which is the first architecture engineering firm to receive the Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award. A graduate of the University of Texas at Arlington's Master of Architecture program, he has held numerous positions with various local, community, and state organizations. Alfred was a member of the Texas Board of Architectural Examiners from 2004 through 2015, serving as chair from 2009 to 2015. He has served on various NCARB committees, including the Audit, Broadly Experienced Architect, otherwise known as BEA, Education, Examination, Procedures and Documents, and Regional Leadership Committees, several of which he chaired, as well as the Ethics and Diversity Task Forces, and the Council's Futures and Program Continuum Advisory Collaboratives. He has also served as an NCARB Visiting Team Representative for the National Architectural Accrediting Board and at the NAAB Architectural Review Conference in 2013 and 2020. Through the BEA program, Vidari represented NCARB in various meetings with Canada and Mexico in advancing the Tri-National Mutual Recognition Agreement among the three countries. He was elected to the Southern Conference Region 3 Board in 2009 and served as Secretary, Treasurer, Vice Chair, Chair, and Director. Vidari was inaugurated as NCARB's Fiscal Year 2022 President at the organization's 2021 Annual Business Meeting. Wow, that's a lot. Welcome to the show, Alfred. Well, thank you so much. I'm excited and honored to be here with both of you this afternoon. Thank you. I don't know if you should be honored. I think uh, <laughs> we'll leave that to the end. You can weigh in at that point. <laughs> Fair enough. I think we're more honored to have you here. That's a, a long list of accomplishments and involvement that I think is really impressive and sets the tone for you knowing what you're talking about here. We're about to dig into Great. it. Great. Yeah. Thank you. You know, the topic that we have, reimagining the path to licensure, is an evocative one to be sure because, let's be honest, a part of what we're talking about and what we really want to get into today is what does that look like moving forward? And I can tell you, so Andrew and I, in our positions, kind of puts us in a unique spot to hear their concerns, what their struggles are, what's hard, what's not hard, 
And when I did a little straw poll around my office that we were going to be talking to you, I said, they want to talk about, they being you and NCARB, they want to talk about how can we imagine this path to licensure in the future? What does that mean? What does that look like? And man, let me tell you, people gave me some opinions. (laughs) (laughs) We have a whole bunch of questions. We'll see how many we get through in our time. And I'll say it up front, Alfred has agreed to do the would you rather question. (laughs) So that's something to stick around for in the end. Because, and I'll just say it now, whatever your answer is, if it doesn't align with my answer, you're going to be wrong. That's that's kind of how it works. <laughs> Fair enough. Show. Fair warning, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. So before we get into talking about what the future might look like in licensure, I think that it's probably a good idea for us to kind of tell a little story about each one of us. Andrew and I can be a little bit shorter because we've probably told it a few times already about how we got to where we're at through our own experience getting licensed. So. Alfred, I'm going to leave you to the end as our honored guest. But Andrew, will you give us tell us a tale about how you went through that process, what it felt like, how you you know, like what did what did you do? How did it work for you? It was really slow and then really quick. I went to school. I got my an undergraduate degree that was a four year degree, and then I went to graduate school to get my master's degree. I worked in an office for a little bit when I was in graduate school, but then after that, I had to go out in the real world and got a job. And start accumulating my hours. And that part, I will admit, in hindsight, took longer than I wanted it to be. It really wasn't about getting the hours or putting in the work. It was more about me making myself ready to take the examination. Because when the time came for me to take the examination, I took all of my nine parts in six months and got it out of the way and finished it. So it wasn't that much of a challenge to actually get it done. It was more of a challenge of making myself do it. There was actually an exterior motivator that made that happen with some things that were happening around my office and my boss getting ill and me having to take over. And so I, I, all of a sudden, I needed to be licensed. And so that put the onus on me to get it done. And it wasn't as, How it wasn't as bad as I was thinking. I was 32 or 31, I think, 31 or 32. So I'd been out of school about six years by the time I took the examinations. But I had all my hours. That wasn't a problem. But putting myself in the position to take that examination was probably the biggest hurdle. That wasn't even a hurdle, but it seemed like one at the time. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So, Alfred, just to prep the table. So here's my story. In some regards, it's not that different from Andrew, but I have a five-year professional degree that took me six years to get. And so I got out of school when I was 24. And over the next, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years, I would seem like I was changing jobs every year. I mean, I was changing jobs a lot. And a big part of the reason that happened, well, a part of it, that's not all of it. That's a whole different, that's, you know, a different issue. But (laughs) one of the reasons was the job I got out of school, we did retail environments. I designed stores. I didn't keep water out of a building. And I thought, I'm not capable of taking the exam at this point. I don't know how to be an architect. Like I, I don't do like real drawings. I don't deal with soil. I don't have to keep water out. I I don't know how any of this works. So I kept changing jobs so that I could go learn how to be a proper architect so that I could be prepared to take the exam. And then very short order, people would say, hey, your skill set, I got other people to do details. I want you to talk and design. And this is what I want you in the room. These are the things I want you to do. 
and I would last like a year and I go, I'm never going to be able to get licensed if I don't put in my time. Because that's there's kind of that idea in the profession that you got to put in your time doing certain things in order to get through this process and call yourself an architect. It's almost like a, a hazing kind of consideration. And it's built into you. So that's how you think about it. So finally, I was probably around 28 years old and I was fairly despondent because in my opinion, at least this is what I believe, that you're not an architect until you get licensed. Right? It's like our finish line isn't graduation. So I just got to do it. At that time, there were still nine tests and you had to have what seemed like just an ungodly number of continuing education credits you know, as part of it. But I'd already been working for, for so long and there wasn't a, a running clock on how you did your time. So I basically just said, all right, if I've worked 40 hours a week for the last six years or whatever it was, and I just kind of filled it all out, right? I mean, and and gave it to the people. And I said, are you okay signing this? And they're like, yes, I'm okay signing this because I know you and I worked with you and blah, blah, blah. So I sent it in and it took me two years to take the test because I was in a small firm and I was averaging a test a month. And then I had to have a six month break because work got so busy, I couldn't study for it. And then after six months, I came back and I did like another three or four tests. Then there was another six month break. And then another, then like the final three tests, whatever it was. And I was lucky. I passed all the tests in the first try, but I had this huge, like, I don't think there was study material that I didn't buy. I even took a seminar down at A&M because I thought like I need to prepare myself more, but I didn't get licensed until I was like the end of my 30th year. And I felt like that took too long in my mind. I thought I'm a massive failure to be 30 and getting licensed. So that's my story. Let's hear your story. Right. Yeah. One of the things I've learned is we each have individual stories and journeys that we've all gone through. And it's always interesting to kind of compare and contrast the paths of how we get to where we get to and the doors that open and the doors that close. And you look back and wonder sometimes of how did I end up where I ended up? So here's my story. I grew up in a military family. Spent most of my early adult life moving around from place to place to place. During that journey, I was up north and I lived overseas for a while in Asia, Southeast Asia, graduated up north of high school. But during that time, um, whenever my father could not take his whole family abroad or to some place, we had a small little home in Fort Worth, Texas. And that's where we would always retreat to. As I was graduating from high school, I really didn't know where we would be. And while my parents were loving and supportive, great family, they were not one that necessarily had any idea of how one enters a school of architecture and kind of left it up to me and my own means to figure that out. And so at the end of the day, we ended up, my father retired. We moved back to Fort Worth, Texas. I had not applied for a school of architecture in Texas. And so I ended up starting my educational journey through the community college actually went for my first year in a local community college. I was very fortunate that I then, my second year was able to transfer with everything, pretty much transferred over, University of Texas in Arlington. I really did not know, could not have told you anything about a four plus two program, a five year, whether it was NAB accredited, not accredited. I just look back and say, boy, I was just very, very fortunate and lucky that I ended up in a place and a time that if I did a four plus two, which was always in my mind of what I was gonna do, that somehow at the end of the day, I ended up with an accredited professional degree. If you'd have asked me, you know, how to do that, I would have not been able to respond at that time. 
I did my four-year program in pretty much the four years and an extra semester. And then I decided to stay out for one full year to work in, in the marketplace. My friends told me, you're crazy to do that. You'll get a full-time job, you'll get a full salary, and you'll never go back to school. You'll, you'll get debt. I mean, all these other things. I actually was getting married in my first year of grad school. And so sure enough, it was really hard to leave a full-time salary and paying job to actually go become a poor student again. But I said, this is what I want to do. I always had in my heart and mind that I wanted that terminal degree of the four plus two because I had a certain desire to be in the academy potentially. And, and later in life, I did become an adjunct for a, a number of years. So I, I felt like the, the master's and the MARC was important. I did that and I got out with my architecture degree, the, the, the graduate degree in two years in a semester. And uh, then I basically went directly into the workplace. Every summer holiday, um, I yeah. actually worked. I put myself through school. I lived at home. I commuted. So I was a very non-traditional student in many ways. There was a lot of things I look back and say, I, I miss certain collegiate experiences. But yet when you have to finance your own way, you kind of do what you have to do. The good news is I had no student debt when I walked out of my, my graduate program. I had a job waiting for me. I had always worked through school and I was a full-time student during, during the semesters. And then I worked full-time in uh, the summers, holidays, Christmas breaks, et cetera, to be able to finance the next semester. And I took the old exam, a version of it in the early eighties. Uh, that was, I think the nine part 12 hour design problem at the end. Back then I was full-time employed somewhere, had to use my week of personal vacation to go off and take the exam and just did it. And, you know, I studied the best I could. I, I remember buying a little bit of study material. And then at some point I simply say, you know, so I just have to do this. So I signed up for that week and took all the exam at one time. I just said, at least this will tell me the areas to focus on and not focus on. And let's see if I pass any of it and, and where I go from here. Well, lo and behold, I'm not sure how, I passed everything in the first setting except for one section, which was like site development, planning, programming, missed it by two points. That was the exciting news. The sad news is back then, I had to wait another whole year to be able to take that one section again. And that was painful. You know, I was so close, I could taste it, but yet I had to wait another year before I could pay the money, sign up, take it, and become an architect. And, and then I passed it, you know, that next go around. But that's kind of how I got here. I guess I did all of that. I was probably in my late 20s by, by the time I truly got that, that license from Texas as my base state, 28, 29-ish, somewhere in there. And uh, that's kind of my journey and my story that I tell people truly started from the community college and then kind of matriculated to the university and then the path forward. That's a great story, by the way. It's, I'm sure people will find it inspiring because it's very kind of a bootstraps kind of kind of situation that you work yourself through. The other thing I think it'll be interesting is it'll inform our conversation a bit later because I know we have questions about, hey, if someone is in your situation now, maybe their journey in the future would look different. It won't be that four two. It won't be the you know obviously it's not the one test taken a year and it's not in a giant room with you know, 800 other people taking exams, things look a lot different now. And I know that that's one of the initiatives that you've taken on as during your reign as president of NCARB is to how can we address some of these items uh, or at least have a conversation about what that process might look like and and how we might empower people to to have better success or at least 
convince them this is worth doing. This is not a hurdle that they can't overcome. So Andrew Hawkins, my buddy, my good friend, is responsible for all the questions that we put together. (laughs) There goes the buck. That's the buck being passed right there, Alfred. That's what's happening. No, it's really not because they're all really good questions. And because he's a professor, I thought, you know what? There's certain kind of connections. Like we were talking about iPal and that's, we have questions about that that we're saving for later because we want to kind of work our way up to that. And I was like, hey, can you take a look at this? Can you put together these questions? And of course he killed it. So I said, I don't need to change any of these. So, so Andrew put these all together, but I thought the first question that's on the list, which is the one that I think that we really should start with is why do architects even need a license? You know, that's an interesting question that I don't get very asked very often. I get a lot of other questions about the process, the past, et cetera. I think that's a really interesting, basic, fundamental question of why licensure? And, and, you know, and I cannot help but think back of it was, you know, let me, let me just use Texas to start with. You know, it was back in the mid-1930s that many of us know that um, the new London explosion, the gas explosion that killed almost 300 students and uh, faculty in New London, Texas, because of a gas leak in the basement, there was no licensure in Texas prior to that. And at that point, the Texas legislator, legislation said, well, we need to do something. And their solution to this was, we need to take this profession and we need to regulate it and we need licensure. Most of the time, and I think in many jurisdictions, and and NCARB is basically a coalition of 55 jurisdictions uh, across the country, and it includes Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, DC, Northern Marianas, Guam, et cetera. So 55 jurisdictions become part of the NCARB kind of coalition. Each of those have their own reasons, timing periods of, of why licensure was important. I like to think of it as very simply this. The role of us as regulators, whether it be at the state board or at NCARB, is to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public. You know, that's the ultimate mission. That, that, that is kind of the grand bargain, I will call, that this is a high-stake profession, just like I would say it puts us right there shoulder to shoulder with architects, engineers, medical profession, lawyers, accountants. There, there are professions where people count on that actually do very much deal with life safety uh, or the health of the public. And I've always believed in my mind that a regulatory environment, being a licensed architect, provides a certain assurance, reassurance to the public that those individuals have attained a certain level of competency. Now, past can be different. Measuring sticks can be different for each of all of our professions. We we currently have our three E's of education experience examination. But at the end of the day, I know from an in-car perspective, and even a state board perspective, when I was on the Texas State Board, health, safety, and welfare was always that common aspirational issue that we always talked about and tried to always remember, you know, we, we are not uh, an organization that is trying to promote the profession. We're not trying to carve out turf battles. We're not trying to lobby for certain scopes of practices. At the end of the day, what we really concern or concerned about is model law and the regulatory environment of the public. So that's kind of why I believe we need licensure is to give some assurance to the public that if they count on an architect and they are truly a licensed architect in a jurisdiction, they have achieved a certain level of competency and they are there to protect the health, safety and welfare of that public. 
let me jump in on that because I, if I was a listener, I would say, does that health, safety, and welfare, right? Since since that answer was mentioned twice, that phrase was mentioned twice. Does that actually inform the process of what we should be licensed over and what kind of questions you ask? Like, is that the the overarching principle that says, hey, when we ask you what kind of mortar mix is required and how many parts of lime or whatever, is, is that contributing to the health, safety, and welfare of us as a profession? And And I know that that's kind of a loaded question, right? It's almost unfair to ask, but it would it would inform opportunities for how we reimagine the future of licensure. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a fair question. My first committee I ever served on, and, and truly I, I really didn't know what I didn't know, was on the exam committee of NCARB as an exam writer, as a test writer. Before that, I really had no knowledge of what it took to put together a valid question and test the psychometricians that we work with, the validation in the sampling of the test, the sampling of the scores, the high, the lows, you try to find the cut score. And those, those tests and those exams are written by volunteers, which are licensed practitioners from across the country. And the test spec is related always to health, safety, and welfare. We're not interested in the color of the building necessarily. I mean, we're not interested in things of design and aesthetics. What we're more interested in, in your example, is maybe do we have the right mortar mix to make sure that it is the right mortar mix so that the wall doesn't, there isn't a failure or effervescence in, in the wall. You know, so there, it's trying to test experience related, knowledge and skills related to an exam that do feed into the bigger overall kind of answer of, yeah, this is a health, safety, or welfare related issue. So I can say from personal experience, having written exams, and, and actually I was on the exam section of the structural side of things, and I'm not a structural engineer by any means, but we're sitting there trying to write questions related to the structural testing of what actually should an architect know related to those particular areas of practice. So that very specifically has a connection to, to the safety and health of, of the public. So I would say, yes, my answer is absolutely. That's the intent, that's the test spec, that's kind of the, the overarching goal with that exam that is currently out there. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. I still remember when I took my structural exam, I had to calculate the moment of a flagpole. And I remember thinking, what does this have to do with me being an architect? Me being able to calculate and do a moment diagram of a flagpole. More this from Life crazy. of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are joined today by Jared Zern, AIA, who is Vice President Examination for NCARB otherwise known as the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards. And we're going to take questions related to the architectural examination process that were submitted via my Instagram account a few weeks ago in preparation for this chat. Nothing is off limits, and we're going to go through as many of the submitted questions as possible over the next four episodes. Hi, Jared. Welcome to the show. Are you ready to do this? I am, and thanks for having me. It's our pleasure, and I can tell you that when we found out that we were going to have you on actually the next four episodes to do this and we asked questions to people, we got a lot, a lot of questions. I know there's no way for us to get to all of them, but we're going to try to get through as many as possible. So let's just jump right into it, okay? So the first question for you today is, why do we have one of the most difficult exams in the pursuit of professional licensing? Ah, uh, yes. I would imagine your 
framing that question around pass rates. We do get the question like, why are the pass rates lower than the medical exam or slightly higher than the bar exam, but lower than some of the engineering exams? And what I will tell you is that from an NCAR perspective, we don't develop the exam with an intent to hit a certain pass rate target. The pass rate really is a result of the candidates that are taking the exam. So our pass rates fluctuate every year. They go up and down. We do publish our pass rates on a yearly basis to help candidates understand that. But historically, our pass rates have hovered between the 60 to 70% in architecture. It's a very different process than the medical exam. So that's one of the reasons you really can't compare apples to apples when you talk about different licensure processes. Yeah, I get that. As a follow-up though, do you look at it and go, wow, we've been hovering around 64 to 68% for a couple of years. Are our questions too hard? There's got to be some takeaway from the fact that it's consistently below 70% pass rate. Do you guys reevaluate what you're doing? We do reevaluate what we're doing, but we reevaluate from the perspective of not, can we make the questions easier so more people pass? It's more about can we help candidates really understand what they're going to be assessed on so that way they can be prepared to pass the exam? Because I will say, I would love it if every candidate came to a test center or logged in and had the knowledge and passed this exam on the first attempt. We are not trying to keep people out of the profession. We want everybody in the profession, but we need them to have the knowledge to be in the profession. Sure. So along those same lines, since the exam is the same for all jurisdictions, why is there not a single blanket national license? Oh, Andrew, I honestly would love a blanket license. Personally, I think the short answer to that question is the Constitution of the United States of America, which allows for states' rights. Yeah, it's all set by the individual states and jurisdictions, right, as to what those are. Okay, well, there you go. It's a real good question, but it's got a pretty direct answer. Mm -hmm. You guys don't control that. So, okay, so this one, we got a lot of these. So for a profession that relies on sketching, why eliminate scratch paper during the exams? Uh, Yes. So we did eliminate the use of scratch paper on the exam when we switched to online proctored delivery. And we eliminated it, obviously, from a security perspective. Obviously, the other thing is all the scratch paper that candidates had in the test center for years before, that was never evaluated. The scratch paper was only there to take notes, help people do calculations and things like that. So The scratch paper was eliminated and was replaced with a digital whiteboard tool. I would not expect anybody to be doing wonderful sketching during the ARE. You have other things to focus on. Yeah, interesting. You know, I will confess that I don't, like, are they using their mouse to do things on the whiteboard or can you type on it since I don't have an experience with this? Absolutely. So for text, you will be typing on the whiteboard for, if you want to do a quick like layout sketch, you could certainly do that freehand with a mouse. Okay. Is there an idea that at some point sketch paper will become available again, or is that that ship has sailed? That ship has sailed. From a security perspective, we are much better off not having things on desks, either in the test center or at home. I guess part of that is the switch to at home for sure that sort of necessitated that elimination, I guess. It did. Absolutely. Yeah. So is that something that if there were no at home tests, do you think paper would still be supplied material that people can use? We would have been moving towards the digital whiteboard, even if we had not gone to online testing. The reality is online testing just sped everything up for us. Yeah. Gotcha. You're getting some benefits. The speed at which this process is happening is one of the trade-offs for, I guess, not having scratch paper as a tool for you to use. So, Jared, thanks for sitting with us for this first installment of chatting with Jared Zern with NCARB. I appreciate your time today. 
Yeah, thanks for joining us. Oh, great. Thank you. You're welcome. Special thanks to our sponsor, NCAR, which is conducting a profession-wide study called Analysis of Practice. If you are an architect or in the process of becoming one, your participation is valued and important in shaping the future of the licensing process. Please visit ncarb.org forward slash AOP and be a part of the change you want to see. The one thing I was going to say to add to what you were talking about is when I took the exam and also when I told some of my employees when they were taking the exam, back when there was the drawing components, there's not a drawing component anymore, but back when there was a drawing component, you could get yourself in trouble trying to over-design what was happening in that little design, that drawing charrette to be like, no, it's not about how well it's designed. It's about how well it meets the goals. You get tripped up a lot in that. Moving on to the next question, we talk about this idea. It seems like the attitude towards licensure is always, at least in my experience, in flux. Sometimes it's great, sometimes it's not. And I feel like maybe here in the past little while, it seems like licensure hasn't been a high pressure point. I know a lot of people don't really seem to feel like it's necessary. How do we go about maybe changing that attitude? Yeah, you know, I kind of find that intriguing. One of the many committees that I have had opportunity to sit on over the years has actually touched base with a lot of the emerging professionals. I was on a futures collaborative where NCARB's looking at the future and the trends that might impact the path forward and licensure as a whole. And interviewed and talked to many high-powered architectural firms out there about some of the advancing technologies, about artificial intelligence and some of the different uh, things out there. And we've, I found it intriguing. And this gets into, a, I think, a little bit about maybe your question of specialization in many ways, too, because there's some things. What I found it really intriguing is that there's many individuals that get out of architecture school and say, okay, I really don't think I want to follow that path of becoming a licensed architect. I really want to take this great education I've received, this holistic thinking of problem solving, and I think I want to go work for Pixar, or I want to go work for Disney, or I want to go work for someplace else. And whether it is a financial decision, whether it is kind of the motivation of I get a title, or I get to do the things I love, which happens to be this area of specialty and this focus of animation or whatever it may be, that's a I think a change from back in, in the ages when I was in school and kind of there was a pretty narrow path forward. You went to architecture school, you took the exam, you did what it required and, and you became an architect. Uh, today, there's a lot of different paths, a lot of different options, a lot of different occupational paths, which this great education may open the door for. And so I, I see a lot of things that I would say, continue to stroke the interest of individuals. And it's made me wonder, we now have so many specializations of, for example, I was on a committee where someone that all they did was high rises, super talls, as they called them, you know, and they said, well, yet I'm an architect. This is so specialized. I never touch the facade. I never touch the skin. We rely on people that have specialization in those areas. They may have an architectural education, but they're not licensed. So, you know, it, it enters a whole interesting dialogue of truly it takes a team of people to put together these really complex buildings. And I'm not so sure in the future that our future is going to include more and more specialists in our field that we team with in these large complex projects that require specialists that may not be architects that help us solve the solutions and problems of, of great architecture projects and buildings in the future. 
rolling into that next question about how the profession has changed and continues to evolve with this. The respect to licensure and and also the process of licensure. How do you think that we're changing and going to maybe continue to change or push to change in the future? Before I got involved with the Texas Licensure Board and then NCARB, I really didn't know that each of the states and jurisdictions could kind of create their own laws and their own paths. I kind of had this naive opinion that what we do in Texas must be what everybody else in the world does, what all the other states do. You go to school, you need X hours of experience, you take this exam, you're good, you're golden. Little did I realize that various states have alternative paths. They, they have different requirements. Some have different models that will close the gap of if you don't have a certain type of education, you can take an experience model that will kind of close that gap and qualify you. So what I learned is that the process is very, very different. It's, it's amazing to me of how dissimilar various states and jurisdictions can actually be. And until you're kind of in the middle of it, then you realize, oh, goodness, you know, we, we're all producing licensed architects. But at the end of the day, this person's journey and path was one way. This person's path was another way. I have many colleagues and licensed architects that I've talked to that said, you know, I never took a nine-part exam. I took this. During my year, I didn't have a design charrette problem. I never took the 12-hour design charrette, yet they still kind of became a licensed architect in their own jurisdiction. You mean there were years that sometimes there was a 12-hour design test and sometimes there wasn't? My understanding is absolutely, yeah. I know some colleagues that during their tenure, the exam was different. The exam continues to evolve and change. And there was some time period where somebody didn't have to take a 12-hour design exam, which I thought was standard. I did too. I thought that was a big part of it. One of the things that, and I'm hijacking, I have a real question after this, but this is just kind of, you know, if we all had beards, this would be the moment where I would interrupt to ask this question. <laughs> and it's, it's the idea that there seems to be this idea, I say it in jest, but I, I kind of believe it a little bit, that the test is getting easier. There's a certain kind of breakdown that happened when I took nine sections. And, you know, at the time, if you would start test one and went back to back to back, it was something like 39 hours of testing. I mean, it was something crazy. It was a lot and it was demanding and it was hard. And it was rigorous and all these things. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, it's so hard for me. Then somebody older than me goes, yeah, I had to carry a drafting board into the convention center floor and I had to draft a wall section you know, it's part of my solution. And, and I had to pack sandwiches. And the guy before him says, I had to make my own pencils. The older generations, it's always harder for them. And of course, we're progressing towards easier, which is not really the point. But I, I, I would be surprised to learn that that seemed to be one of the kind of standards that exists is that there was always this kind of comprehensive test that kind of said, hey, you're going to design a building and really, it's to see about siding and access and ADA accessibility, following directions and programming and dead end corridors and stairs. And like it all gets buttoned up into this one kind of exercise. So I am kind of surprised to hear that there's a possibility that that didn't exist at some point. Yeah. And, and you know, the time frame I'm talking about was 30 years ago. We all kind of carry, I think, this path and this journey that I did this. Yeah. Therefore, you need to go through that same hurdle as I did. Yes. In order for it to be fair. And I know this person told me to go take their exam. They actually had to go during a snowstorm, get the shovel yeah. out of their trunk, shovel part of the roadway <laughs> to get to the test center. So that's the best one I've ever heard yet. You know, so it keeps getting and building 
more and more of kind of this badge of honor that if I did this and suffered through this, then you should walk through that same door and experience the pain as I as well. But, you know, what I will say, Bob, is this. We are now at ARE 5.0. There's been the evolution of the exam. What I have learned is the biggest reason why exams change is because different ways to test competency. We are now so sophisticated with the psychometricians that actually are able to test and look at test scores and look at highs and lows and cut scores. And there have been different ways now that have been realized of how to actually measure competency in different ways where we in the maybe earlier days all believe that, well, the most comprehensive way to do that is I'm going to give you 12 hours, a blank piece of paper and in a short program and say, design a library from, from scratch. You know, so we've evolved from, I think, a methodology of maybe testing to a certain degree to different methodologies that maybe are more contemporary or more tried or true. Sure. Well, as we lead this conversation into a reimagined path to getting your architectural license, do you think that this would change the future of what an architectural education is going to look like or should look like? I've thought about your question many years before today. I've had this great privilege to have been on three architectural accreditation reviews, schools of architecture, and I've been involved with the last two accreditation conferences where the NAB accreditation standards have been created. We as NCARB a year or so ago kind of posed a challenging question to the academy. Why do we have a five-year or four plus two program? Could we not accomplish everything necessary in a four-year program. I think the jury is still out on that. You start to hear things from those that are going through the pipeline of the enormous cost of education that comes at the back end. And then you get into a job that you go, goodness, you know, I, I, it'll take me 22 years to pay off this student loan at, at the same rate of what my mortgage is, you know, or, or you hear all these unbelievable stories of that student debt. So, the architectural education that I think uh, I've kind of posed a question internally is we have a variety of committees at NCAR that fortunately as incoming president, you get the great privilege of putting the volunteers together. So for example, I appointed nearly 400 volunteers from across the country, licensed, unlicensed professionals, those from the academy, those even someone from the community college into these different committees. Three of the legacy committees are education, experience, and examination. I said this year, when I, when I stood on the stage and became the incoming president, I said, there's two things we're going to focus on and lean into during my presidential year. The number one, and the most top of mind and closest to my heart, is equity, diversity, and inclusion. Being the first Hispanic architect to be the president of NCARB in the 102 years, I said, this is the most important topic I think that we have to really lean hard into. The second I said is it is time that we really put some heavy focus into the licensing model of the future. And we start to really take the information. We really start to explore what would that look like? I told the education committee this, I want you to come up with a theoretic model of licensure of the future where education is the only requirement. I told the examination committee, I want you to come up with a theoretic model of the future for licensure where all you had to do was pass an exam, no matter how you got there. I propose to the experience committee is I want you to come up with a model of the future 
where all you had to do was have a certain amount of experience. And at the end of that journey, you could become a licensed architect. They are starting that conversation as we speak. And I've always had to qualify that at the end of the day, the states will have to consider how do we buy into this? It's really gets down to the individual jurisdictions. The states write their laws, rules, and regs. It is not an NCARB function. NCARB can guide, NCARB can influence, NCARB can provide model law, but it's up to the individual state to open up their law and say, this is the new path forward. I have left that challenge as my year to see where we go. And there's a lot of things happening that's gonna help inform that, that I can kind of touch on of how we're not doing this in a vacuum, but we're also doing some things to help inform this conversation with the data gathering, some research that we're currently doing. Okay, so I want to unbox that answer just a little mm-hmm. bit. First off, I think everybody would love to hear or, or, or loves to hear the fact that you've come up with three alternative paths right out of the gate that takes advantage of well, where do you get your education? How did your experience measure in this? And I would imagine that taking a single exam starts to align us back with like lawyers and with uh, doctors and with engineers and like like they don't have 800 tests. Why do we have so many? So one of the things that I was curious about when you were telling me all that had to do with the influence that NCARB might have over the individual states who are putting together their kind of licensing requirements, right? Because that's a whole issue that, I mean, when I put a call out to the people that follow me or on Instagram or listen to the show and I said, Hey, I'm talking to these guys at NCARB. What do you want to know? I got avalanche with stuff. A lot of it is financially driven. Mm -hmm. And some of that financially driven part comes from like, we got to go to school for six years or five years is almost untenable given the number of hours that we have to get. So a lot of, a lot of five-year programs actually take six. And then we come out and I think the median starting income for folks graduating from architecture school right now is right around $50,000. Yet, you know, I've got six years of education that I'm paying off, quite possibly. I don't make a huge salary upon graduation. And that the cost of all the study materials and all the exams starts to become just like kind of crazy to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But then on top of that, you kind of go, well, how much when I look at my state and I go, well, this is the path that my state has deemed as appropriate for me to follow. There's this Alfred's coming up with all these great ideas. He's tasked his collective forces to solve these different possibilities. Is there any likelihood that the states could come to some kind of consensus of one over the other? Or let's say that half the states choose one of your three, the other half choose another three. Nobody accepts one of the three versions. Are you going to start getting people that say, well, I'm going to go get licensed in Oklahoma because they let me use my four-year degree. And then now I'm going to see about getting reciprocity back into Texas. That requires me to take an exam. Is this turning into a giant mess? Like if you have all these different paths, and the states can choose which of these versions they want, what does that do? Yeah. Or is it you're going to try to come up with one and try to get as many people to adopt that? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting what you just described is kind of uh, here we are today. Many people probably don't realize that right now, for example, there are 17 states that will allow you to go through the licensing path without a NAV accredited degree. So they have an open path an open gateway, an open door, there are some jurisdictions that say all you have to have is a high school degree. 
not even a college degree, that they have created an alternate path that lets you cover that potential experience side of it or lack of education through an experience portfolio or something like that. So we currently kind of have exactly what you just described, Bob. And right now, believe it or not, many people do that. Many people will go to a jurisdiction where they can take their current credentials portfolio experience and they will enter into the system through there and then try through reciprocity, gain access to other states. So what you just described is the world, in fact, right now that exists, where I think the bigger question becomes, so what is that path of the future that simply says we don't all need to go through the same size funnel every time of having a NAB accredited degree of the other 38 states, et cetera, et cetera? Can we open up doors of alternative paths that will recognize and allow that there's more than one way to get there from here? And that's really kind of, I think, what we're trying to explore. And you asked the bigger question of the influence. NCAR rights model law. We recently, within the last year, we adopted new model law, which took five years to kind of recraft. And we reworked it to be more contemporary, to speak into the contemporary language. And so that model law serves as a go-by for a jurisdiction that might want to lift it and use it. Some jurisdictions take pieces, some take parts, some adopt it totally and say, we love every bit of it. Others say, no, thank you. We'll write our own. And so there you have a fundamental challenge of we can't even all agree upon you know, the, the law of the land for our jurisdictions. And so it does put the candidate, those trying to move globally, it puts us at a disadvantage quite honestly. As we talk about this possible new path, it seems like it's an attempt to maybe shorten the path in a certain way, not lessen the value of it or anything, but shorten that path because what the average time span is something like 12 years most people take to get licensed. And so I think that this idea of this IPAL program, which is integrated path to licensure. Yes, yes. A step in that direction. And you guys have got 24 schools now, I think. Yes. We just actually, we became the first in the state of Texas here at A&M where I teach. We're just getting that started this semester. And so even that though, as I understand it, our pathway is a little bit different than what's been set up in other places. So I guess it goes back to maybe some of that jurisdictional stuff where even this IPAL pathway is a little bit different. But can you talk a little bit about the evolution of IPAL and what you think maybe the future of that is or if it has a future? The IPAL program started out, quite honestly, kind of as a, as a problem-solving kind of, I think, challenge to NCARB, previous president, several generations before me, who kind of looked at this and said, goodness, that 12 point, it might've been 12.8 years at that point, maybe it's now 12.3 or something of years to licensure. When you could compare it to some of the other professions, you just kind of look at that and go, goodness, that's probably part of the reason why we lose so many along the path because asking them to hang on to work this, you know, 12 years to, to get to finally that position is just a long, long time. So the way I'd like to explain it is this, Previous to IPAL, most jurisdictions required a very linear path. It was very straightforward. You cannot go to step two until you complete step one. Step one is you get an education. Typically it had to be a NAB accredited degree. So you got to go to a NAB school. You either do a four plus two, you do a five-year program. You complete that, you graduate. Now you got to go get some experience and you have to do the AXP with several thousands of hours in six different categories of divisions. Once you get signed off on that from your supervisor, now you sit for the exam. 
And by the way, you have a rolling clock nowadays for the exam to try to help either incentivize you or to pressure you <laughs> that you need to finish this within a reasonable time, which was set for five years. So that was the linear path. And it took, when you put all that together, the typical average was 12 years plus. So the theory here was why not allow more of an overlap of these three different areas? So that if you could, for example, while you were in architecture school, focusing in the study in the area of whether it's structures or mechanical systems, wouldn't it be interesting of while you were freshly educated and up to speed on that topic area, is there a way that you could somehow check the box and get some related experience through the AXP categories and then actually be allowed to sit for that portion of the exam? So that you didn't have to wait till you went through the total five or the four plus two. Then you got a couple of years of experience. Then we're asking you, oh, yeah, now, by the way, go back and remember how to do that moment diagram, you know, that you haven't done in who knows how many years. So the theory here was you have relative learning experience. Why not try to get experience in that that closely more closely ties with the education and then test for that? while it's a little more contemporary and fresh in your, in your experience, in your mind. And so that was kind of, I think, a basic premise. I was not one of the creators. You know, that was created by, by others. But that was kind of the idea behind it to date. Um, as Andrew was saying, there's 28 MARCs, BARC programs at 24 schools. There are about 700 students across the country enrolled in IPAL. So the question is, is that the future? I'm not so sure that is exactly the future model. What I will tell you, it's an interesting alternative path. It's one that right now, given the nature of what it takes with licensure currently, it was an acceptable path for the jurisdictions to look at and say, we're good with this. Well, wait, wait, before you get into that, because we're, we're so downstream of like, you're making 12 points and <laughs> I want to talk about a few before we get so far that it doesn't make sense to revisit them. <laughs> So one of the questions that I wanted to kind of interject about IPAL is when it was considered as a methodology to licensure, was there any concern that the schools that adopted that as a program would essentially start to be teaching to standardize testing? You know, the idea is that all the questions are the same. So now if I'm taking my structures classes and then at the end of them, the idea is that, hey, you can take the same test that everybody else is taking to show competency in this area that now those professors will actually start teaching to get people to take the test, which you live in Texas. I don't know if you have kids or not, but that was one of the big knocks that public school was going through is now they're not actually teaching kids to think critically or teaching them anything other than how to take standardized tests. Is that any kind of feedback that you guys have received since I know that the IPAL program, technically I started what, like in 2015? Right. Is this is this some feedback that you guys have been getting? I'd, I'd like to touch on that a little bit. As far as I know, we've never heard that. Part of the initial concept of the program was the idea was simply we did not want a school of architecture have to come up with a specialized curriculum or approach to be an IPAL school. Our expectation was within the curriculum that you have, can you provide the education that coordinates and hopefully works in tandem with the local firms that are going to provide experience to better position the candidate to go and take the exam. Never heard of from the academy a concern that they're teaching to a standardized set of questions 
No, good question. As far as we, as I am aware of, there has never been that concern expressed because every institution is so different in their methodology of, of how they're approaching things, how they're teaching. We've never experienced that or heard that, but that is a, that's a great question, valid question. Uh, but I've never heard that that is a teaching kind of to the test. Part of it to me is I think is comes from a lack of understanding about what the IPAL really was. I mean, back when it first came out and got floated around the state of Texas and the different universities, we had a lot of questions like that. And the real thing is that the IPAL program really doesn't make you adapt to what you're teaching. It actually adapts to what you're teaching. And that's kind of how that overlap is. Even until recently as last year, when I saw how our program was going to lay out, I was still somewhat skeptical about, okay, how is this really going to work? But it works within the framework that you have. The goal was not to create anything new or require any new classes or change anything that's being taught, but how can it work into, I think, what's already there, like you mentioned. Texas has a number of accredited schools in it, but a and is the only school that's adopted the IPAL, or we were the last state to have a school that finally adopted it, even though the program's been around for five or six years. Is that the concern? It's just people don't understand actually how it works or integrates into their program? And that's why they haven't, I mean, I love the yeah. idea of it. And I'm wondering, why aren't more schools doing it? What am I, what am I missing here, Alfred? Why, why aren't more schools adopting IPAL? What are you hearing? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a good question. I don't have the answer. I think there's several things. Some is, I believe as much as we have gotten the message out, as many presentations that we have done um, in various formats uh, with uh, ACSA, you know, the the, the organization of the schools of architecture, you know, their, their groups, the NAB, which is the accreditation piece, keep sending the message and slowly every year we continue to get the trickles of a few more and a few more. But a lot of them simply, and we've always said, this isn't for everybody. You know, what this really is, is an alternative path. We also know that part of the limitations that we have been told is for in order for this to work, the ideal situation is that I can go to school and then I can also just go down the street and work with an employer, a firm that will support this and give me the opportunity to get the experience that will kind of be the cohort of what I'm learning in school. And so there's kind of a connectivity there. What we've heard is, for example, of a school of architecture, if you're in a rural setting and there's not a large metropolitan area or an urban area where there's a good employment base, it gets very hard for those students of architecture to connect with a firm that's willing to support an IPAL program because there's not enough firms in a rural kind of setting. So this is really flavored to, you know, a, a great like an A&M, a UT, a University of Houston, those where there's many employment opportunities so that they can kind of marry the education, the experience, kind of coordinate that more collectively for the benefit of the student. So it really takes a firm. And then the one last thing I'll mention, you have to have a state jurisdiction that is also supporting this and allows that candidate to take the exam before graduation. That's another really key issue with IPAL. There are some jurisdictions that simply say, you go and get an education, you get experience, then we allow you to take the exam. Well, I want to move on to something that I know you mentioned like right at the very top of the conversation. I know it's important to you, and it's one of the questions and feedback that we got, and it has to do with invigorating the profession with more diversity. And I'd be curious, in your capacity as president, are there certain obstacles that 
NCARB thinks that they can solve to bring in more diversity into the profession? So one of the things that I said when I became elected was this is an important area that I'm going to lean into. And this was top of mind. And this has been kind of the challenge that I've posed for many of my committees and the work we've been doing as the board. And as many of you may know, we, along with NOMA, um, did a study, a survey of the attrition of why are people falling off the path of licensure? Our data tells us that about 40% of the candidates stop pursuing licensure at some point in their career. And that is a unbelievable disappointing number. And we found a couple of things is we found that candidates of color or those that are over the age of 40 really find that they're less likely to get firm support. They do not get the encouragement, the support, the sponsorship within their firm if they're an underrepresented group or if they tend to be over an age group of age of 40. We also found that about 25% of those that, that did the survey said that they have a hard time within their firm getting the AXP experience that they need across the six different areas. That many times if they were an underrepresented group, they were kind of pigeonholed in a certain area and not given opportunities and exposure to the full range of the six areas of AXP. And then we also heard is from the underrepresented groups that if they were a candidate of color, they felt less likely to be identified with firm leadership. In other words, they felt like firm leadership did not support them in the same way as their white counterparts. So the question really is, so what can we as NCARB do? We also heard some other interesting things. For example, cost was a real barrier, was an impediment for many of the candidates. Cost of the exam, cost of study material, for example. And so what we said, okay, what can we do within the lanes that we, that we have control over? Because a lot of the others, we don't have control over the firm culture and some of those opportunities. So what we have done is we have decided, and we're going to roll this out in next year in 2022, we're preparing study material for each of the six divisions that will roll out free of charge to any and all candidates that are in the pipeline for the exam. Wow, that's a big deal. Those are really expensive. Again, you guys don't have any control over that, but the study materials that are there that you have access to or can get access to are really expensive. Yeah. And so with that, we're going to produce study materials. We're going to produce the mock exams to, to kind of help candidates along. I've also asked our board to tee up a future conversation about the actual individual cost of each, each of the six divisions of the exam to kind of revisit, is there something we can do in that cost area as well? So there's things that we can do that we're trying to do. The other things that I'll share with you is that we've really kind of gone deep with regard to equity, diversity, and inclusion. We, for example, have done a bias study of the exam. We wanted to make sure with an outside consultant that there was something, there, there was never anything in the actual writing of the exam and the test questions that had a um, unrealized bias in the test questions or the way it was put together. Good news is we received a thumbs up to say, no, there does not seem to be any implicit bias in the questions, but we're still going a further step deeper to look to see, is there a bias in the AXP program and how it connects to the exam as well to make sure that we aren't missing and blind in some of these areas as well. We're also doing a fairness and licensure conversation and study to make sure and look at how our programs are set up. 
when I, as the president, got to do my volunteer assignments of those 400 plus individuals, I did things that I was told, you're the first to ever do this, Alfred. You're the first person to ever include someone from the community colleges on our education committee. You're the first to ever include an, AX, uh, uh, an ARE candidate, an actual test candidate in the, in the exam committee. And now I wanna be really careful here. Even though we have an emerging professional sitting with us in that committee, at no time do they get exposure to the test questions or, or those rates. I mean, they don't get an inside free shot at anything. Their purpose is to help us better understand the experience, the path, the gaps, the blind spots, what we must be missing in those areas as well. And so we had a tremendous amount of diversity that I got to put on every one of our different committees of where approximately 40% of our committees are represented by underrepresented groups across the country. So there's a lot of things that we can do, but the unfortunate is that there's a lot of things we do not control. Firm culture, the experience in the academy necessarily. I mean, some of those things that we need to actually work together, I think, to solve some of those bigger challenges that really lie before us in this area as well. Me being Hispanic, me being bilingual, English was my base language, my first language, even though I'm bilingual, I have to process things in English before I can say the Spanish version of it. What we started to realize is this year was the first time we ever did webinars to the licensing candidates that we started doing them in Spanish. So not only have we have a history of doing them in English, longstanding history, we actually started realizing by partnering with AIA Houston chapter, for example, they said, we have a large international or Hispanic population. Could you do some of these sessions in Spanish? We had great results by doing this in Spanish in addition to English, which prompted us as an organization to say, you know what we need to do is we need to do a study in terms of a base language for the candidates taking the exam. So we're in the process of doing a study to say, is your base language English? Is it Spanish? You know, I mean, Portuguese, whatever. We're not suggesting in any manner that we're gonna go and write the exam in 14 different translations. I mean, that's, that's unattainable, but we wanna better understand the assumption of writing the exam is always that we're all proficient in English. We may have great competent individuals that Spanish may be their base language or Mandarin may be their base language and they're proficient. And as a result, it might take a little more time to process some things. Kind of like when you start to quiz me in Spanish, it takes me a little more time to respond, but I'd get there for you. So we're trying to be very forward thinking and progressive in some of these other areas that might be impediments as well. Wow, that's impressive. And you know, I will say, Alfred, that we've been talking for quite a while and this has been really, really useful. And I'm, I'm really happy that you're able to join us today. But I think that we need to move on to the end of the program, the thing that we teased at the very beginning, which is your willingness to participate in this episode's Would You Rather question. I'm in. I've already conceded that unless you agree with me, your answer is wrong. <laughs> but in keeping with the idea that Andrew kind of prepared a list of questions so that we could make sure that we kind of hit like the ones, there were so many questions were like, which ones do we hit, you know, in the amount of time that we have? Andrew also suggested today's would you rather question, <laughs> which is pretty tame by his standards. Let me just tell you, All right, he usually comes up with some, with some dark ones and this one's not. But oh. to that end, I don't think any of us have thought about what our answers are because we learned it right before we started recording. And I know Andrew just came up with this right before we started too. So here we go. Here's the question. Okay. 
Would you rather never get to say hello or never be able to say goodbye? I think it's harder than you think. I enjoy in my mind thinking about the never say goodbye. I would like to believe that once a friend, once we have a rapport, once we have had an opportunity to compare, share, break bread together, we may not agree, but I always like to believe that I would always have the ability to contact, call you my friend, call you my colleague, never have to say goodbye. To me, goodbye is like, shall we ever meet again? So I'm not <laughs> sure how we introduce ourselves. I'm not sure how we ever cross paths and, and you know, do the secret handshake to connect that you're an architect, I'm an architect. I don't know how that part works, but I sure like the fact that if we could ever have that exchange, I would be able to count on someone as a lifelong acquaintance, a lifelong friend, someone that I could always call on in a time of need or counsel or for words of wisdom. That's a reasonably thought through answer, given the fact that we didn't give you any time to actually reasonably <laughs> think through it and answer. <laughs> I think he took it to a completely different level, though. He got pretty deep on what it means to say goodbye. I was thinking much more on it just every day I meet somebody, say hello or say goodbye kind of thing. You're thinking you just get up and walk yeah, away from right? the table. Uh, yeah. People yeah. go, Where, where's he going? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, in that regard, you're right. My answer would be to, I'd rather get to say hello and not have to say goodbye. That exact thing. It's easier to slip out sometimes, which happens to be my nature at certain times to want to be able to just oh, back out of the room and go on my merry way. So not being able to say goodbye fits into that pretty well, I think. That's my answer on it as well. Well, that's the right <laughs> answer for the record. Both of you were correct. So I did think of it a little bit like Andrew's saying. The, you walk into a room and you say, hi, everybody. But then when it's time to leave, you just leave. And people are like, what's wrong with that guy? What a jerk. I did think of it a little bit like that. But I always thought about the idea that the act of saying hello is almost always a positive one, right? Or at the very least, it's neutral to positive. Right. But the act of saying goodbye is always neutral to bad, mm -hmm. right? Like, Hopefully, nobody's ever excited when I say goodbye, right? <laughs> I mean, at least they're not to my face. I don't want them to say like, yes, that guy's gone. Right. I think about it and I go, I'd, I'd much rather align myself with, with a behavior that was seen as positive as, as opposed to one that could be construed as a sad moment. Yeah. Even if you go along that route, you can say that the saying hello really is is a representation of opportunity. There's always some sort of new opportunity that comes with a hello or a hi and not so much with a goodbye. You're never going to meet anybody new if you can't ever say hello, I think. Yeah. What if you left instead of in those moments when you'd say, well, goodbye, everybody, at the end of the, you kind of go, well, <laughs> yeah, hello, just... everybody. And that's, and that's how you left, right? Under those circumstances, people go, man, that guy's positive. They never forget <laughs> you. Where you could just go with, isn't it aloha that means both, right? So I guess you could cheat it out yes. that way. Yes. Yeah. That is a cheat right there. Andrew's <laughs> really good at the cheat. I'm going to go on record for saying that. Well, thank you for being on the show, Alfred. I know I, I could speak for Andrew when I say uh, we really appreciate it, but are there any kind of closing remarks or words that you think you'd like to end on before we end our chat today? Probably the closing thoughts I'd like to leave you with is uh, I'd always heard of NCARB. You know, I mean, I actually was a certificate holder for a number of years. And 
And it wasn't until I really became involved that I started to understand the services, the programs, the difference it could make, and uh, the importance and the relevance of the position that uh, the members and that the board and the leaders have. And while at many times I know it's challenging, it's very easy to, to throw a stone. And I understand that. I mean, I, I truly do. And, and I find myself many times listening and apologizing for everyone's experience that they had. I mean, I understand that. I, I've, I've joked with people that in the past I've told people I'm the president of NCARB and I got to get the same reaction of saying, for example, of I'm with the IRS and I do audits. <laughs> so I understand that. And But what I tell people is that it's a very different organization. It tries to be forward thinking. We're trying to challenge. We're trying to be agile. We're trying to actually be a position as an organization that can be a thought leader and change the future and the path and trying to make sure it's a robust path and that all those can find a place that are competent and that have that desire. And we all come at it through different lenses and through different journeys. And that's okay. That's what makes us such a rich and wonderful organization and profession that, that we're all a part of. And thank you so much for uh, the great engagement and the conversations and the questions that you've had. I've really enjoyed it. Well, thanks again, Alfred. Greatly appreciate the time. I think we learned a lot and we could probably still talk about it more, but we appreciate the time. Anytime. Thank you so much, gentlemen. There you go. Another episode in the record books. Hope you enjoyed our discussion today with NCARB President Alfred Vidari. Thank you for being with us today for episode 86, Reimagining the Path to Licensure. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe or follow button so you can get magically delicious new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please consider leaving us a comment, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star The Future is Looking Up rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, infos, and photos from this wonderful episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.